0: You can go ahead, um, and if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Second Samuel. And we'll talk a little bit here, but before I do that, how's everybody doing? Whoa, <laughs> overwhelming up here. Okay, let's. Let me just ask a question. How was your spring break in a number? Grace. A hundred. What's the number? twenty-four hundred. Okay, so 100, hundred, twenty-four hundred. What are some other numbers? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Obviously, a lot of humanities going on here. Not a, lot of, not a lot of math. Okay, that's fine. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Believe it or not, that's what we're doing here. Um, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve Davidson students uh, and Davidson College. Let me tell you a little bit more about RUF. RUF uh, is for the convinced and the unconvinced. For the believer and the unbeliever, for the cynical realist and the positive idealist, for the rested, refreshed, and ready to study, and for the homebody who's already homesick for some uninterrupted television. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we hope you feel welcomed by RUF. Uh, and that you get to know REF. And that's part of our concern by having all the students come up and do music and read and pray. Uh, maybe get, get, introduce yourself to them if you don't know REF well, or if you've done that, please introduce yourself. If you've been around the REF block, so to speak, go ahead and introduce yourself to someone new. Uh, and we just really want to thank the people who are new today. And if you brought a person that's new, thank you so much. We appreciate that risk. Um, and um, it's great to see you all after a week. <laughs> A week without Samuel, first and second Samuel. So uh, which is where we're going. So let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing this semester, and we'll dive into the passage. We've been studying the life of David. Uh, David's life occurs in the Bible in, the, in first and second Samuel in the first two chapters of first Kings. And so you might be asking, why are we studying David? David is a man, a human being, who is so much like us. He's so ordinary in so many ways. Right? He wins, and then he loses. He pouts when he doesn't get his way, and then he's so excited he's dancing in his underwear in our passage, right? And David, yet at the same time, is so extraordinary. He's so unlike us in so many ways, right? First of all, he's a king in the ancient Near East, Anyone? No, you're not that. And I'm not that either, right? But also, and more importantly, uh, David's name is mentioned 58 different times in the New Testament. 58 times. The only person named more in the New Testament is Jesus. And so that tells us something. That tells us that Jesus, oftentimes in those 58 mentions of David, is called David. He's called the son of David, the descendant of David, the greater David, And so, what's going on here is that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of David's life. Jesus not only succeeds where David fails, he takes the successes of David and multiplies them by the sum of every person who believes in him. So, that's why our title for our series is um, The God After Our Own Hearts. The God After Our Own Hearts. Because David does give us a detailed drawing of the Christian life, but he also, the life of David, gives us a detailed drawing of the God of the universe and his all-out, all-pursuing love for his people in and through Jesus Christ. That is the son of David. All right, so where we are today, tonight, we skipped a few chapters yet again. Uh, As you can imagine, we can't go through every chapter as much as I'd like to uh, in a semester. So here's my encouragement again. Read along with us. (laughs) Fill in the gaps for yourself. If you want to know the full story about what's going on between 1 Samuel 30, which we looked at two weeks ago, and 2 Samuel 6, go ahead and read on your own. I'd love to talk to you about it if you do read it and you have questions. But we left David in enemy territory, if you recall, a couple weeks ago. We left him in the territory of Israel's enemies, the Philistines, right? And in the Philistine territory, which is the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, um, David was that rightful king of Israel who was on the run from the wrong king of Israel. That is Saul. King Saul was chasing King David all over the land. And David lived for 42 years. Just try to grasp that. 42 years on the run in the wilderness, a place of pain, a place of temptation, and a place where there's a desperate lack of control, let alone a lack of food and water. But in a long-awaited turn of events, King Saul dies in battle, and King David is declared the rightful king of Israel. And suddenly, beginning in the book of 2 Samuel in the first five chapters, the circumstances have completely reversed for David. David's on the throne. David's in Jerusalem. All of his enemies are dead or defeated. He's in a place of peace, he's in a place of prosperity, and he's a place of power. And so the question becomes, what does David do? What's the first thing he does? What are the first acts of his newly inaugurated kingship? That's what we're going to look at this tonight and for the next few weeks. Uh, and we're going to begin looking at that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So would you pray with me one more time, and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to gather and to hear your word. Um, it's so good to sit underneath it, uh, to gaze at things that might feel uncomfortable and hard, uh, but Lord, to also know that you're at work. That deep down inside of every single person in this room, there's a thirst for you. There's a hunger For righteousness that can't be met here on earth through people or through achievements. And I pray, Father, that your word would slake that thirst, would satisfy that hunger, that you would not leave us here waiting for you to show up. We trust your word. We trust your promise that you do show up. And we pray, Jesus, that you'd be high and lifted up, that you'd be more beautiful and more believable to each and every heart in this room, that you would not let us leave this room the same. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, once upon a time, in a faraway land, I was once an intern for RUF, like Juliana, who we just sang birthday odes to. Uh, I was an intern in the place of University of Central Florida in Orlando. And I had a great campus minister. He was kind, he was patient, and he was insightful, and he became a good friend. His name was Andy Johnson. Eddie uh, Johnson also, by the way, had the most awkward sense of humor you've ever encountered. He loved the joke for one person. <laughs> he'd do an, an audience of 80, and he'd find the one joke that made one person laugh and just reveled in it, just thought it was the best thing ever. Um, so you can imagine he's funny and he's uncomfortable, so of course he has great, funny, and uncomfortable stories about his life. Okay? One such story is when he went to adopt his most recent child which is an amazing story of perseverance and patience. Uh, Andy and his wife Kelly decided to adopt a child, and they raised money for it, and they waited, and they went through a local adoption agency in Florida. And finally, the day arrived where a birth mother was willing to give her child to Andy and Kelly. And they wanted a girl, but this, this mother had a boy. And they realized, you know, adoption isn't online shopping, so maybe I should just accept... This boy, and they got very excited about it, and it was a really beautiful, exciting time to participate with Andy and Kelly. Um, anyway, the day came when the adopted child was going to be born. So Andy and Kelly nervously went to the hospital and waited in the lobby, uh, like parents, in a lot of ways, and. The doctor and the nurses were delivering the baby, uh, and by the way, the delivering doctor was the same doctor that had done all the ultrasounds beforehand, had been doing the checkups with the mother, the birth mother, so they felt like she was in good hands so in all the nervousness and joy, the birth mom pushed, there was agony, there was ecstasy, and there's a child that was born. we'll just skip all the details okay um, and this beautiful baby was born. The nurse held up the baby to the mother, and you know she's crying. It's a wonderful scene. And then the doctor, she, the nurse holds up the, do, the baby to the doctor. And the doctor does a double take. And goes, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? And the nurse calmly, patiently turns to the doctor and says, it's a girl. That's a girl. That's what's wrong with him. You see, what happened is the doctor had done all the checkups and all the ultrasounds and became convinced that this baby was a boy. And so when the actual, this is a true story, when the delivery happened, the first impulse of the doctor was to say, what's wrong with this boy? This boy looks like a girl, (laughs) right? So... You know, it's amazing. It's so certain that Harper, the child, was a, was going to be a boy that they, that she couldn't. The doctor could not see the obvious right before her face. And there's a sense in which all of us are like that doctor, but we're like her about who God is. Whether we grew up in the church, in a religious home, maybe, or we've just picked up our ideas from God in school, or with f- friends and television, whatever the case we often see God as who we want him to be instead of who he is. We often remake God in our very own image. And perhaps this is why passages like 2 Samuel chapter 6 are so hard for us. Right? Just think about verse 7 for a second. This guy, Uzzah, corrects a mistake and is struck dead. And our surprise, our shock, and then our anger parallels David's surprise and then resentment because we're all put out by the fact that God works so differently than we think he should work. Right? Although we can assume that God doesn't always care about what we care about, the reality is even more true. The opposite is even more true, and it's the reverse. It's this, that we don't oftentimes care about what God cares about. Sometimes we just don't care about what God cares about, and that makes these passages very hard. And this is why this passage is actually extremely valuable. That's why at a college campus, we're talking about this incredible scene that happened nearly 3,000 years ago that makes so little sense on the first reading. It's so valuable because it offers a not-so-subtle correction, a slap in the face, if you will, of who God is and what God cares about. Simply put, our passage tonight tells us something really powerful and really true and will change our lives. God is bigger and better than we think he is. God is bigger and he's better than we think he is. Therefore, we approach him with a sense of wonder and a sense of gladness. God is bigger and better than we think he is, and therefore we approach him with a sense of wonder and a sense of gladness. Okay, maybe the ark fell off. Okay, um, our passage... Don't pick it up. Our, our passage <laughs> <laughs> describes God um, and how to worship him in the form of a story. And this story has three events. Okay, and These three events talk, are purifying our imagination slowly over the course of a narrative. And the three events go like this, and it's on your outline. First in verses 1 through 2, the centrality of God over our lives. Second, in verses 3 through 11, we see the big holiness of God for our wonder. And then, third, and finally, in verses 12 through 15, we see the good blessings of God for our gladness. So, we're going to look at the centrality of God, the bigness of God, and then finally, the goodness of God. So, let's start with verses 1 and 2 the centrality of God for our lives. For the first five chapters of 2 Samuel, David has been making peace in his kingdom. He's been putting down civil rebellions. He's been putting down civil wars. And he's been calming and taking over foreign enemies. That's kind of what his steel has been doing. That's what he's been up to. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we see that what David's first act excuse me, in his peace and his prosperity is. What's his first act? It's surprising. He orders 30 thousand troops to go to a single house in a small village to do what? To pick up a four by two by two wooden box. What is going on in this passage? This should make us pause, right? I mean, imagine that you spent 42 years in the wilderness 42 years. You've dreamt of this moment when you got to the throne. It's been promised by God your entire life, right? And then the stress and the heat and the exhaustion. This is your moment, right? I wish you imagine this in a Davidson term. Think about 42 years of back-to-back midterm weeks, okay? 42 years of people stressed around you, stress going on inside of you, and then I want you to imagine that you, every, pro, every grade that you receive is done with a group project, and the group that you're working with is the most disgruntled and stressed students in your class. And that's what David's been dealing with. That's his wilderness wandering, right? So now imagine you come out of that experience, and you have this permanent spring break ahead of you, right? Right? You've got the royal PJs on. You've got endless live entertainment happening. Friends with exciting plans and great adventures at your fingertips. (coughs) Why in the world are you going to the trouble of gathering soldiers, musicians, carts, and oxen for a small wooden trunk? For David in the scriptures, this box wasn't just storage space. This box was the Ark of God, and the Ark of God is extremely important. It's the place where God promised to show up. It's the place where you could go and you could meet with God. It was his mailing address. If you wrote a postcard to God in the East and Near East, you'd write to the Ark. That's where he shows up. So I want you to imagine, you would enter this tent, the Holy of Holies, and that's where you would go face-to-face with God. One time a year, one person a year. And I want you to understand that this box wasn't any box. This box was a footrest. It was a footrest of the king of the universe, whose legs dangled down from his throne in heaven all the way down. And he placed his feet on the ark of the wooden box. (laughs) That's what's going on here. And that's why it's so important but also, why was this box so special? It was because of the stuff inside of the footrest. I don't know if you have one of these at home, but sometimes you have, have the footrest that opens up and you've got things in it, usually like remote controls. In this case, he's got three very important things that God's, God has told his people to put into his box, his footrest. Okay, it contains the stone tablets of God's commands. God's words to us. It's got a budding staff of God's priesthood. God's forgiveness for us. Then finally, it's got a jar of bread that fell from heaven. God's provision for us. So you see, you've got provision, you've got forgiveness, and you've got words of direction, all in this small wooden box that's supposed to remind all the people who God is. Who God is, a God who gives words to direct us, a God who gives forgiveness to rescue us from our evil and bread to feed us day by day. It is a visible physical address where God shows up and this is why David's very first act as a king of peace was to go and get the ark. he wanted God he wanted God he needed God not just in the wilderness but also on the throne. And David's actions, his intentions, have got to beg a question for us, don't they? They've got to make us ask a question. The question is this. Is the worship of God a priority in our lives? Is it the first acts that we do? Is it a center of what we care about? Look, whether you're a Christian here, whether you're not a Christian or you're not sure what you are, whether you feel like you're in the wilderness or whether you feel like you're filled with peace and prosperity right now, the purpose of each and every one of us is to worship God. And look, I don't have to prove this to you. You know this. You know this by experience, right? Don't you? Unless we put first the story of Jesus dying for our self-centeredness and daily providing for our every need, something or someone else will take that central place in our hearts and our minds. Right? Just think about our lives at Davidson. Davidson. The schoolwork that always hangs over our heads. That never feels like it's done and always requires more and more time. So demanding, such a boss. Friends that we never really can please. And then, of course, the comfort that we chase that never feels like it's actually enough. So by the power of Jesus' words, his forgiveness, his daily bread for us, we take baby steps we rebuild our perspective, even now, right now, in this room, at this moment. Look, think about it metaphorically for a second, because I love a good analogy, don't I? Um, think about it as a house, right? Think about what has to go first in you build a house. The foundation, right? The foundation is God. The windows are the activities we do. The doors are the friends and the people that we let in. Now, I want you to understand that there's not just the foundation comes first, it's primary, but also that it upholds all the rest of it. The worship of God. God upholds all those good things are gifts from him. And also, the rest of those features, the windows and the doors, are, in a sense, optional. Right? Now, it would be weird to have a house without a door. Or a window, right? But without a foundation, you just don't have a house. And maybe the door goes over here, or maybe it goes in the back side, or maybe it goes in the side. I had a house in New Mexico that had like eight doors, okay? And it had a lot of windows. And so the question would be, all of those things depend on the foundation. But I want you to to understand that this passage makes that point. David has great intentions, but the good intentions are not enough, right? Good intentions aren't enough. How and exactly why we're worshiping also matters. And this is point two in our, our handout tonight, okay? The big holiness of God in verses 3 through 11 shows us, it restores to us a sense of wonder. So we're going to look at the big holiness of God, who and how to worship him, and it restores a sense of wonder and, and worship, and wonder in life, because life is worship in some ways, right? What are we living for? In verses 3 through 4, the worship begins for David with brand new carts, twanging harps, clashing symbols, right? And then it ends all of a sudden with God's anger, Uzzah's death, and a three-month pouting fest. He goes home, and he closes the doors, and he shuts the windows, and he doesn't come out again for God's ark for three months. But why, we have to ask, why was David so angry? But more importantly, why was God so angry? Why did Uzzah have to die? Isn't that the question that we all have when we read this passage? What's that about? And I'm going to answer that, but first I'd like to question the question. Okay? Why is this so hard for us? Why are we so shocked and disgusted with God in this passage? Right? Why is the anger of the Lord in verse 7 so very hard to stomach for us? I think our frustration primarily lies in a fundamental misunderstanding of what love is and what love isn't. So we're going to talk about what love is and we're going to talk about what love isn't. First of all, love is actually often righteously angry. So the first point is God, love is righteously angry sometimes. Okay, Love is righteously angry sometimes. An author named Becky Pippert challenges us to think about love this way. Think about how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions, like drugs or relationships that are abusive. Do we respond with benign tolerance As we might towards strangers, far from it. We intervene. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So you see the Bible, and Becky's highlighting this, Becky Pippert, like I know her. Becky Pippert is, hey Becky, um, we see how the Bible challenges our low view of love by challenging our low view of sin. Okay. Pippert help, helpfully defines sin for us as unwise actions and unhealthy relationships. Unhealthy relationships with God, unhealthy relationships with others, unhealthy relationships with ourselves, Right? Biblically and in our daily lives, sin is not just some sort of impoliteness, like failing to hold a door or having bad breath. Sin is a soul-ravaging cancer that God and his holiness will not stand for. Because he loves us too much. And so sin often requires God's love to intervene in a serious and intensive surgery. He can't just throw breath mints at sin. It's not going to solve the problem. It's not a Glade plug-in solution. There has to be invasive love. (laughs) Second of all, I want to also point out what love isn't. So love is oftentimes righteously angry, and true love is, is not always permissive love. True love is not always permissive love. Here's what I mean by that. We think that true love means giving someone absolute freedom. Think about when you were a kid and you had Fluffy and Whiskers. And you said, what you love you must set free. And you took Fluffy and Whiskers out into the wilderness and you let them go. Do you know how long Fluffy and Whiskers lasted? Not very long. Probably died of starvation or bear within a few days. Maybe a week (laughs) tops. I'm sorry. Hate to be that guy in your life. Okay, <clears throat> but just think about it this way, right? Think about like why giving people absolute freedom is not a great idea. L- let me use my example, my kids, as an example. Um, should I let my twin three-year-olds do whatever they want? Is that the best kind of love for them? Like they're just having fun. Sid, leave them alone. Do you realize that if I let William and Carol alone for like five minutes, they would die? They play in traffic. Okay, I have to tell them not to go into the street. I have to tell them not to put their full water bottle into a butterfly net and not to swing at each other's heads. That's, I know it's fun, William and Carol, but you can't do that. You can't knock each other out cold. Okay, So is love just letting them knock each other out? Is it just letting them play in traffic? Or is true love angry for their welfare? Is, does it intervene on their sense of fun? Now imagine that God is who he says he is. Imagine that he's infinitely greater in his mind, and his thoughts, and his ways, and his being than any of us are. His wisdom and knowledge are infinitely greater than us. Much more great than a 33-year-old man father to his three-year-old children. Okay? So I hopefully this makes Uzzah's death Not necessarily easier to deal with, but maybe we're more willing to accept it. That God has ways that we don't understand. But God takes Uzzah's life to rescue his and 30,000 other people's souls. Do you realize that? God takes Uzzah's life to rescue his soul, Uzzah's soul, and 30,000 other people's souls. He must rescue these people from treating God like a common sack of potatoes that's fallen off a cart. He must rescue these people. He must rescue God from our familiarity, which breeds his contempt. God is not like us. And according to God's own words in the book of Numbers, chapter 4, his ark was to be worshipped in a particular way. What's fascinating about this scene is that the technology was from the Philistines, They're the ones that sent the ark on a cart. The word of the Lord told them to carry the ark on the shoulder, to never touch the ark, and to carry it on the shoulders of a chosen people, of a chosen family tribe. (coughs) With rods, not with hands. Look, at the end of the day, I have to say this. The Bible must guide our view and the way that we worship God. God is not some white long-haired, blue-eyed, my-buddy-Jesus figurine. He's not some jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. That's just cheap American consumerism. Okay, God, Jesus is the Lord of everything that ever was and ever is in everyone in the universe. That's biblical Christianity. That's what the Bible speaks to. And please note that the same New Testament that calls Jesus a friend of of sinners also calls God an all-consuming fire. So let's, re- if we read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, we'll find that the one and the same God exists in both parts of the Bible. So this passage, as hard as it is, is paralleled in the, in the New Testament as well. It's not out of nowhere. We can't relegate it to three thousand years ago. Therefore, Uzzah's death in verse 7 acts like a danger sign that reminds us to beware of God. Okay, Beware of God. Beware that God is outside of our control. He doesn't need our help to steady Him. We need His help to steady us. Beware that God tells us who He is and how to seek His will and how to meet Him through the public available to everyone's scriptures. Not Primarily through personal and private feelings, thoughts, or preferences. And what this means is that this isn't just Sid's opinion. Okay, you, can t- you should study the scriptures. If you agree with me, disagree with me, that's great. But the scripture is not just giving an opinion that we can just say, well, that's great for you. I love the way that G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, a man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun and a private moon. There are cosmic implications for what this passage is saying and who God is. And these objective, true outside of us warnings break through the Christian cliches, all the Christian hobby horses and figurines and t shirts. And they restore to us a sense of wonder what does it look like to walk around and to think that this is who God is? And all of a sudden, that whole old tired line about Jesus dying for our sins becomes all the more powerful because we realize how high he came from. How mighty he is. The glory that he left aside to make us holy, that holy, like him. To love us where we are so finally, so fully, so freely, and so forever. And this rumor... This rumor of a big and holy love is what reaches David in verse 12. Isn't it amazing? All of a sudden, he starts to grasp that this God is not just big and holy. He's good. And he loves to dole out blessings. And this drives David out of his three-month pout fest. Verse 12 tells us and David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom. all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. And this report, by the way, point three in your outline, this report of the miracle grow plants and animals, of the way that Obed-Edom shines and shimmers with the presence of God, he's just alive with him. David hears this and his heart aches for it. It changes his whole, whole heart about going and pursuing the Ark again. David and we see that God's big holiness is not intended to keep us away from God. Which is exactly what we think, right? We hear passages like this and we go, oh, so what you're telling me, Sid, is that God has an electric fence around him. Do not touch, you're going to get zapped. No, what this passage is saying to us is that God desires to bless those who seek him. That's the purpose of God. In many ways, he exists to bless those who seek him, just like he blesses Obed-Edom. That man. And so we see David's rejoicing. He gets it. What does he do? Right? He leaps. He shouts. He dances with all of his might. I just want to know what the ancient Near Eastern move was. Right? <laughs> was it the wobble? I mean, I just I want to know. Like, was it? Uh, anyway, I mean, I'm sure he did a bunch of them the shopping cart, everything. Um, it's amazing to think look, um, I want, but I also want you to notice the sacrifices that are going on here. Verse 13 tells us that for every 6 steps the ark carriers took, King David in his priestly attire gave a sacrifice of an animal, two animals. It was a bloody mess. And some commentators that I read are so upset with the amount of blood and the amount of animals that would have been sacrificed that they can't believe that it actually happened. Every 6 steps. It's a lot of miles to cover, it's a lot of animals, right? But these same commentators, many of them, struggle to believe that Jesus' blood and God's life took away the threat of death forever. And so I gotta ask herself, we've got to ask ourselves a question Do we realise that if God is as big and holy as this passage says that he is, that we need Jesus' blood not just every six steps, but every step we take? Do we realize that God's best blessing, the thing that David desired over all things, was not a bumper crop of wheat and calves? What David desired was the peace and the rest of God's smile. Just as smiling and asking no more. And we get this smile, we get this peace and this rest that we all long for. We get it not from a wooden box. God doesn't dwell there anymore. God dwells in Jesus. A Jesus who speaks words, forgives our sins, and daily feeds us. If you're looking for God on earth, look at the people who believe in him. That's his physical address. Go to a church. That's his physical address. So how do we worship this big and good God? How do we put God at the center and the foundation of our lives? Notice I never gave you an application on that. You just were sort of told to do something, right? Because that's what I think the passage has led us to. Very practically, it looks like meditating first on the way that God smiles upon us because of Jesus' perfect life. Right? Before we mentally try to craft the perfect schedule or the perfect to-do list, Let's rest in Jesus' perfection on our behalf. We seek out ways to remind ourselves in our worship of who God is and how we relate to him and how much he loves us in Jesus Christ. And this is what the church does. This is what R.E.F. is for. This is why you're encouraged to have a quiet time. Not because you can check off boxes to make God happy, but because it reminds us of who God is. It gets us in the presence of God. A presence that is amazingly complex. When we read and when we sing and we listen to God and his satisfaction in us through Jesus Christ, we we need to do this on the throne of success as well as in the wilderness of failure. It's so, so very important. So if you've been around the church block if you've to anyone talk about the holiness of God for a while, you've probably expected me to quote the Chronicles of Narnia for the last 30 minutes. Right? Especially that scene in The Lion wardrobe, the Wardrobe where, the be- where Susan goes to Beavers and asks them about Aslan. Right? You know the one if you've been around the block. If you haven't and you've read that, we can talk. Um, if you haven't read about that, I'm more than happy to give it to you. But I'm not going to do it here. I would like to end instead with a quote from a different book in the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> Prince Caspian. Okay? Prince Caspian tells the children's reaction to Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus. And when they see him again in Prince Caspian, Lewis writes, quote, the children felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid. And as, and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. Okay? The children felt as glad as As anyone can who feels afraid. And as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. Look, we worship him with wonder and gladness. We worship God with reverence and rejoicing. We tremble and we dance before him. That's the paradox of God. What a picture of a loving and holy God that Lewis gives us, but more importantly what this passage gives us. That God is bigger and better than we think. And his worship, our relationship with him begins with that paradox. With all of his glory, a glory untouchable, but a love that sets our feet dancing. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the way that you challenge us with your word. The way in which you help us to rethink all of the world. To rethink you sometimes. Um, I'm so glad that you argue with me. I'm so glad that I'm not always right. I'm so glad that these students are here to wrestle with who you are and how you care about them. And I pray, Father, that Jesus would work and you'd be at work in every heart. And Jesus, I pray that you um, would lead us to trembling and to dancing. In your name we pray. Amen.